This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a lot of uncertainty in Washington around the Affordable Care Act, and it may have Coloradans who get their insurance from this state's exchange wondering about the future. So let's check in with Kevin Patterson, CEO of Connect for Health Colorado, where nearly 200,000 Coloradans find coverage. And Kevin, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. How stable is the individual health insurance market in Colorado right now? I think that's a, I really appreciate that question. We received a report a couple weeks back, uh, and it came from Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and it really looked at and ranked each state's uh, risk mix, um, just basically who's participating in your health insurance market. Um, do you have a lot of people that are with chronic conditions, a lot of people that are having heavy claims? So it's a picture both of the insurers and of the insured. Exactly. And so what this report showed is that in Colorado, we actually ranked number one in that mix of folks of having more healthy um, uh, people participating in the exchange, as well as those that were needing maybe some more urgent kinds of care. And so we think that that's a a good measure uh, as as an indicator that Colorado is really in a a good place around supporting what the state's efforts around uh, having the most healthy state in America. And so we, we think that's important. Why is that mix important in terms of the insurance market, that it not just be a pool of sick people who are individually covered? So it, it's it's just the basic tenets of insurance. You, you're trying to mitigate or spread that risk across a larger number of people. And so if you're on an employer-sponsored program, they really, you know, insurers tend to like those because they know they're going to have a certain number of people. They have a pretty good history of how people have accessed care. I think the biggest difference with the individual market is we had a number of people that had not had access to care. And so being um, predictive around what their usage was going to be, I think, was a bit underestimated. And so there's a little pent-up demand there. And so what this risk mix tells us is that we have a number of people that are healthy, a a good number of people still uh, that may not be accessing care as much, and then some folks that are looking and have higher claims. But it's it's spread around as, as best as we are in the nation. So that's one picture of the exchange and of the insurance market in Colorado. But according to the Colorado Health Institute, insurance carriers here have requested average premium hikes of 27 percent for 2018 on the individual market. That comes on the heels of a 20% average increase in 2017. There are more than a dozen counties in Colorado that have just one health insurer on the individual market. Is health insurance, even with the healthy mix you talk about, just becoming cost prohibitive? I believe cost is a prime consideration in health insurance. Um, I, I think there's a few things in your question, though, and I'll just give me a second to kind of parse them out a bit. Yeah, sure. Um, one, I think insurance, is the, the rates are really based on claims data. And until last year, there really wasn't a full year of claims data just in the way that the Affordable Care Act had uh, been implemented on this timeline. So I think what I hear you saying there is that the market is still in a place of stabilizing after what is relatively a new law. I think that's fair. Okay. Um, so, so you've got a, a good chance now for insurers to actually see the history. And, and at first they said it was going to take about five years. And so, you know, I think we're on year four uh, of, of the implementation of a full four years of the Affordable Care Act. And so these rate increases are really just based on 
what people are accessing in terms of care and the claims that that's around that. Now, that so, might be cold comfort to someone who's facing those premium increases. T- to what extent will subsidies absorb the cost increases for those who qualify? A perfect question. So what happens with the Affordable Care Act, uh, we have, the, of course, the Advanced Premium Tax Credit, APTC as we like to call it for short. And so when rates go up, uh, so does the amount of the subsidy. And so it, it traditionally has been based on a silver plan, which is kind of middle of the road type plan. Uh, and we are able to see if a 20% increase in your rate happened last year, there were some counties where it actually caused a slight decrease in what the net premium was. Will that be the case, do you think, for some Coloradans this year? I think that is always the case when we see an increase in in the rate. But there will be some who pay at least something more, would there not be? There is no doubt there will be others that will pay more. Do you find that most people or a lot of people who qualify for subsidies know that they do? Actually, we just did a survey and we were talking about these results with our board Actually, what people do is underestimate their eligibility sometimes by three times and so by a third. Um, And so where they think you have to make 40,000 or $30,000, you can make up to um, if for a family of five over 90. And so we want to make sure that people understand that even if they don't think they qualify, they probably should check. Uh, to this idea that there are uh, a handful of counties in Colorado with just one insurer on the individual market, uh, I spoke a while back with Colorado's Democratic U.S. Senator Michael Bennett, who really questioned um, the predicament that that puts people in. So you have to have insurance under the individual mandate. And yet, if you're on the individual market in some of these counties, you only have one seller of insurance. You are forced to buy a product that only one person is selling or one company is selling. Is that right? I think that is an extreme challenge um, for a couple of reasons. One, we are built around one of the tenets of our organization is really to provide choice. It's hard to say you're actually talking about choice when there's one carrier for your for your county. So we we certainly want to make sure that we continue to work with that that one carrier because we don't want that to be a bear county as some of my neighboring states are dealing with where there's no one there. But I, I do believe that when we see competition, when we see people, uh, companies really working for that uh, competitive advantage for the clients, the customer does does benefit. And I think we can actually begin to find ways to begin to drive down costs, which is something we're not set up necessarily to do, but we can reflect that. In, in the cost that we show. So you acknowledge that as a weakness of the market in Colorado at this point? I, I would agree. There are claims that Obamacare is collapsing, but an audit found that Colorado's exchange is sustainable for the next few years. That could change, though, auditors say, if there were changes to the ACA. Like President Trump's threat to eliminate what are called cost-sharing reductions, so these help lower expenses for the poor, They stabilize the market in general. If the federal government stopped these payments, as the president has threatened to do, what would it mean for Coloradans on the exchange? Is that is that the death knell? I I don't believe it's a death knell. I think it would be a huge impact for folks on the lower end of the eligibility spectrum. So anyone that's um, between just just a little above two hundred percent of poverty, there's the cost share reduction allows them to uh, a subsidy that goes to the carriers to pay for a lot of those typically out-of-pocket costs. And if someone 
is barely qualifying for assistance. They're still working. They might have two jobs. So they don't qualify necessarily for Medicaid. They're not on Medicaid. Mm-hmm. So they're on they're on my side. You have to think of a continuum of, of eligibility. Yeah, but, but they're on the exchange. In that but they're on the exchange on our side. They're vulnerable, you say. They are vulnerable with that because it would make them pay more out of their pockets to access care, which we think might prevent them from actually um, seeking care. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And at a time when there are many question marks around the future of the Affordable Care Act, we're checking in with Kevin Patterson. He's CEO of the state's exchange. Uh, Almost 200,000 Coloradans get their insurance through Connect for Health Colorado. And I, I wonder if you hear much from Coloradans outside the health policy realm and what, what they're telling you, their concerns about the Affordable Care Act, whether those concerns perhaps differ between urban and rural Colorado, Kevin. Wow, that's a, that's a, there's a lot in that question. So, yes, there is a difference between what we see in urban communities and what we, what we hear from our friends in the rural communities. Uh, I'm getting ready to do my annual tour of, uh, out, outside of Denver for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's really important to talk to people and, and understand on the ground what's happening with them. Um, and two, uh, I, I think it helps to see what in smaller communities, they're really collaborative around what they're doing to serve their community. And I think there's a lot that we can learn in the urban communities around how they're, how they're doing that. Give, give me an example. Take so me. a perfect example is I was just in Glenwood Springs. I was talking to a broker, has a couple hundred covered lives in, in Glenwood works really well with Mountain Family Health. Uh, they figure out how to how to serve the client where they're coming in. Because a lot of times the clients don't really understand if they qualify for Medicaid, if they qualify their, for my side, they, the eligibility rules are different. That serves to confuse people. Uh, and they really figure out what works best for that client and gets him or her or their family in the right place and then they can pick the right plan for themselves. Confusion. And, Do you run into a lot of confusion about the exchange? Yes. Uh, I mean, I... But there's so much I could say about that. But I think because we've only been around a few, uh, a small number of years, we're pretty still not well known, I think. Uh, and people don't understand what assistance is available, how the programs work. Remember the, the law change. It was a very thick piece of legislation. It's just a lot for people to process. So Congress adjourned for its summer recess without repealing or replacing Obama, Obamacare. But the vice president has said this ain't over by a long shot. What do you hope happens when they reconvene? Well, I, I think it's it's tough to say because, uh, you know, I, I told a lot of friends of mine that my crystal ball fell after last November's election. It's got a big crack in it. And I don't think I've been able to get it fixed. So it's hard for me to be as predictive. Well, uh, I'm not asking you to predict. I, I want to hear what you want. Ah, well, I would hope that what we're hearing around uh, bipartisan approach to actually solving some of the issues uh, in the Affordable Care Act are actually going to be some of the policy pr- uh, proposals we begin to see. Uh, people just want problems solved. They want to have different options. They want choice. I think there's ways to do that without completely um, throwing out the Affordable Care Act. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I'm also not saying it's failing. So I think somewhere in the middle there is is a place for us to do something that actually works for more people to, to actually have care. Would you like to see any particular changes to the exchanges? You know, I think what's really tough for people to understand is the eligibility on Medicaid where it looks backward in times. And for us, it looks forward. So they're literally in two different planes of existence. And that's really confusing for people if they're moving from 
Medicaid, they make a little bit more money, they come to my side, but the rules are completely different. Right, but the idea is not that someone necessarily stays on Medicaid. They may graduate to the exchange and the individual market. Yeah, and we, we think that that's actually a great thing because that means they're actually making more money as a family, and, and that's a good thing. In the last session, Republicans in the state legislature went after the exchange with the intent of eliminating it, perhaps moving people seeking insurance to the federally run exchange. That bill died. Um, do you think the exchange will be around in five years? Actually, I do. I I have until they tell me something different. We are right now the law of the land. But I think even more importantly, we're really close to our customers. And even though we may not control the decision, we're able to reflect their opinions and what they want. And we think that's important. Thank you for being with us. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Kevin Patterson, CEO of Connect for Health Colorado, the state's insurance exchange. On a warm day, temperatures inside a car can quickly reach 120 degrees, even with the windows cracked. A new state law encourages bystanders to take action. It offers legal immunity if you break into a car to save an overheating person or pet. This law takes effect today, but uh, don't go smashing windows just yet. Here to explain is CPR Sam Brash. Hi, Sam. Hey, Ryan. This law does not mean you can just break out the hammer, correct? Right. There are a series of steps you have to follow before breaking in. They're meant to tell you if a person or a pet is really in danger, and then you're supposed to help the owner, not you, solve their problem. If you follow the procedure, you're safe from legal prosecution. If you don't, the car owner has every right to charge you. Potential crimes include things like criminal mischief, trespassing, or tampering with the vehicle. So if I break into a car because I think a life is in danger and I'm wrong, I could be in trouble. That's right? Yeah, it, you could be. This law protects you if you have a reasonable belief that there's danger. I talked to Janae Boswell. She supervises Boulder Police Animal Control, and she's also the president of the Colorado Association of animal control officers. Here's her concern. A bystander that sees an animal in a vehicle won't necessarily recognize that the animal is just panting as opposed to now the animal's in distress and needs to be removed. That's why she really hopes people learn the signs of heat stroke in dogs. Otherwise, people might think that this law protects them and then they could end up in court. Okay, well, what are the signs that a dog is overheating in a vehicle? So she should be looking for like really heavy panting, panting at a much quicker pace than you're used to seeing in a dog. It often sounds really raspy. Uh, Other signs of heat stroke could be things like excessive drooling, a dark tongue, unsteadiness. You might have trouble getting the dog's attention if you rap on the window. Those are all things to look for. Okay, if I see those signs in a dog, what should I do next under this law? So next, you have to try to get in touch with the police or animal control. Call 911, call your city service line. That's 311 here in Denver. Uh, Boswell says even if you do have to break in, you probably can't care for an animal once it gets out. So the professionals can. Get them headed in your direction. Uh, Then you should try to do everything you can to try to find the owner of the car. Should I just stand there shouting out next to, you know, the blue Civic that I need its owner? Yeah, <laughs> you could. Uh, also, if you're outside a home, you could just knock on doors. Uh, dogs are really often left outside things like grocery stores, shopping malls. One really good idea is to go inside and ask for a PA announcement. Boswell says that's often how the, these sorts of conflicts get resolved. Uh, the next, next step might seem really obvious, but it is spelled out in this law 
spot. Uh, before you break in, you have to try to open the doors. Oh, because the car could simply be unlocked. Right. You could be the person uh, who tries to smash a window and then somebody else shows up and opens the passenger door to, you know, free Fido. You don't want to be that guy. Uh, so let's say you followed all these steps. You've recognized the pets in distress. You've called the authorities. You've tried to find the owner. You've tested the doors. Help still isn't there and the pet is really clearly in trouble. Then and only then do you have legal immunity to break into the car. And do you have any recommendations for how to do that? Yeah, I asked uh, Boswell that very question. If there is a situation in which you need to break a window, please do it on the opposite side of where the animal is located. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, right. Uh, You don't want to put the pet in more danger from broken glass. Say the pet's in the front passenger seat, you should break the back rear window or the trunk. Uh, Then the law says you have to stay at the car until police or animal control shows up. If you can't stay, leave a note with your name and number. How often do cities like Boulder say, deal with this problem of dogs, pets in general, left in vehicles? Yeah, so last year in 2016, the city of Boulder responded to 450 calls of animals left in vehicles. So that's on average more than one a day. Those calls tend to cluster in the summer. But Boulder and other cities like Denver do get calls in the winter, too. Cold cars can also uh, be a danger to pets. Now, I read that Jefferson County has had a problem with people leaving dogs in hot cars at their courthouse. They've sent officers into the parking lot to check inside cars. Uh, Fundamentally, Sam, is it illegal to leave a pet in unsafe conditions like that? Uh, It is illegal in many localities. For instance, again, in the city of Boulder, uh, it could land you with two charges, subjecting animals to unnecessary suffering and improper care of an animal. Each of those carry a fine of $999 and up to a year in jail. Okay, but it sounds like it depends on the jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about dogs, but you said the law refers to pets in general and to people. Right. So pets, that includes things like ferrets, lizards, cats, dogs, whatever you keep as a pet. Now, it explicitly does not include livestock. That's in the law. So pigs, chickens, goats, llamas, mules, those sorts of animals cannot be broken out of cars and trailers. And yeah, this law also includes people of all ages. Um, In Colorado, seven kids died of heat stroke in cars between 1998 and 2016. That's according to a study published in the journal Pediatrics. Have other states passed laws similar to this one? Yeah, the Michigan State University Law School took a look at this. Uh, 26 states have passed bills to address this problem. Some prohibit leaving animals in a vehicle. Others, like Colorado, protect people from being sued if they rescue a pet. Uh, Colorado is now one of eight states with laws like that. Most, like ours, uh, require people to follow a number of steps before breaking in. Did most lawmakers support this bill when it was passed? Yeah, it was a really popular bill. I saw it go through at the Capitol. It it had sponsors from both parties, and it passed with nearly unanimous support in the Colorado House and Senate. There was one exception added to the bill. Uh, If you see a canine police dog in a police car, you can't break that dog out of the car. Okay, that dog stays in the car. Sam, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's Sam Brash talking about a new law that protects bystanders who break pets or people out of hot cars. That's just one of many new laws that take effect today. Let's talk about a few more. With 58 eyes, five no's, and two excused, House Bill 1266 is passed. 
Good news for people caught with marijuana before it became legal in Colorado. Those convicted of misdemeanors for using or possessing pot can now have their records sealed, assuming whatever they did then wouldn't be a crime now. Brian Vicente is a lawyer and marijuana policy advocate who helped write the state's pot laws. He says this new law will affect a lot of people. Up until... Colorado voted to legalize marijuana in 2012. We had about 10,000 citizens every year arrested for marijuana crimes. And the new law, he says, has major benefits for them. I think that um, you know certainly has a positive psychological effect on those individuals. They're no longer, you know, once they do that ceiling, no longer really considered a criminal in the eyes of the state. But then it also could have a you know a real life impact in terms of um, you know if they're applying for jobs. Uh, applying for a loan, trying to get into the perhaps the military or, or, or into higher education, they wouldn't have to necessarily list that criminal conviction on their record. On to another new law. This one lets you subscribe to health care, kind of like the way you get a gym membership or a Netflix subscription. Direct primary care is getting more popular across the country. You or your employer pay a monthly fee to a doctor's office, and you get as many consultations as you need instead of going through an insurance company. The new law makes this model of health care more accessible in Colorado. Rather than seeing your primary care provider maybe once a year to twice a year, which is kind of the U.S. average, you're now able to connect to them four to five to six times more. Dr. Clint Flanagan offers direct primary care with Nextera Health on the Front Range and in some mountain towns. He advocated for this new law to put his practice on better legal footing. After working with the old insurance model and in ERs, he says direct primary care lets him spend longer times with patients start to do these more proactive things for a patient's health care, dive down into uh, why they're having challenges and why they're continuing to smoke a pack of cigarettes per day, uh, why they are 50 pounds overweight, and, and what we can do to help prevent diabetes with them. Um, you can dive into depression, mental issues, which, you know, those things can't be done in five minutes like a, a strep test can be. And so what we've done is we've designed a business model that allows for that. All right, but what does it cost? Dr. Flanagan says the national average is about 70 bucks a month, and he advises patients to still get insurance, but it could be much cheaper coverage just in case of a catastrophic event. Medicaid patients should be careful, he says. The law has some caveats that mean they may not access direct primary care as easily. Police officers face a lot of traumatic situations, and state lawmakers wanted to make it easier for them to get counseling. So another new law in Colorado encourages sheriff and police departments to provide mental health support for officers. State Representative James Coleman, a Denver Democrat, co-sponsored this bill. It was very important for me, but also our community, to make sure that not only are we providing resources for our peace officers, but we're also providing folks who can go along with police officers to do co-responding to make sure they're assessing what's going on at the scene of a crime. Uh, so that things aren't necessarily taken out of hand and lives aren't lost, people aren't injured, jobs aren't lost. I mean, there's a lot that happens when there's uh, issues between the police and the community at the scene of a crime. The law sets up funding through donations and grants to help law enforcement agencies cover the cost of counseling and other services. 
A change to Colorado's Open Records Act makes it easier to analyze government records. If governments have documents in digital form, they now have to be released in a usable way, as spreadsheets, for example, or searchable files. Jeff Roberts directs the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition, which backed the change. The whole point behind the public records law is access to information about how government decisions are made, how tax dollars are spent. Having that information in a a format that makes it easier to understand it is an important thing, especially because a lot of government information is now kept in spreadsheets and databases. You might have hundreds of records in those databases or thousands or sometimes a million. And a printout doesn't do you much good in that case. The law also makes it harder for governments to reject requests. They have to take out confidential information instead of denying a request outright because some of the information can't be legally released. But this new law also makes it harder to punish officials who deny requests for public records. And finally, it is easier to taste what amateur winemakers in Colorado have to offer now. The law used to treat amateur wine kind of like moonshine. It was illegal to enter into competitions where the venue had a liquor license. Well, now wine in small six-ounce portions can be included in any wine competition in Colorado as long as it's not for sale. Cassidy Scholl, executive director of the Colorado Association for Viticulture and Enology, said this legal tweak isn't just a win for home winemakers. It means amateur wine competitions can expand, and the state can try to lure larger national competitions. There's a national amateur winemaking association and a competition that travels from state to state every year. So now that Colorado's passed this law, there's the possibility of Colorado hosting a conference such as this. So potentially one more way to indulge if all the state's breweries and wineries and dispensaries aren't enough. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You'd think that an event that drew a million people would make money, right? Well, that wasn't the case for what was once Colorado's premier bike race, the USA Pro Challenge. The race went dark last year. A new and much different version, part race, part street party, starts tomorrow. It's the Colorado Classic, and I'm joined by event spokesman Ben Davis. Welcome to the program, Ben. Thanks, Ryan. The USA Pro Challenge was a seven-day race across Colorado, This Colorado Classic is down to four days and three cities, so Colorado Springs, Breckenridge, and Denver with a circuit through the mountains, I should say. Uh, Give me a couple of, I don't know, other big differences that spectators may notice. Yeah, you bet. Um, I think one of the biggest changes we've had in the format this year is three of the four days are going to be circuit races, um, which gives fans an opportunity to see the riders start the race. Um, they can then move out on course and watch the riders pass by several times at interesting points throughout the course. And then they can, um, uh, if they work hard, see the riders finish as well. Because um, so the start there's is, a lot more opportunities. The start and the finish wind up being in the same place each day. Is that what that means? Yeah, it is. Yeah. They start and finish at the same spot on all four days. Um, and then on the third day of the event, which is Saturday, they ride out of Denver up to the peak to peak highway and then back down into Denver. And that just gives people the opportunity to see more of the race, I suppose, than being at one point and having them fly by. You bet. Uh, will spectators have to pay to see any of the race itself? 
No, they don't have to pay. Um, there's a great opportunity to see the event in Denver on um, uh, Friday and Saturday. We're throwing um, two headliner concerts with Wilco and Death Cab for Cutie um, playing both nights, um, as well as uh, the start and the finish of the race will happen inside the festival space. And so um, fans can join us down there, not only for the concerts and the race, but also um, to uh, take part in Denver Flea, which includes over 150 vendors um, of locally made products. This is and the, so the, the, the Velorama the portion of the of the event. And we're, we'll get into exactly. greater detail uh, in a moment. But uh, to the race itself, what's the toughest challenge riders will face on, on this route? Oh, man, there's quite a few challenges. I think the one that sticks out the most for me is um, in Breckenridge, they're going to be climbing Moonstone Hill. Um, you know, enough times for it to hurt a little more each turn. <laughs> so that'll be an exciting spot to watch the event. Moonstone Hill. I, I gather this is a lot of elevation outside of Breckenridge. It is. Yeah. It's a very steep climb, um, that they're going to do five separate times. Um, so, uh, riders can expect a little more pain with each turn. Even without the climbs, I gather that altitude is just a big factor anytime there's a race in Colorado. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the terrain we have here, even down in Denver, is higher than many races in Europe. Can you give us a list of some of your favorite viewing spots for folks who want to watch the race? Um, I know that we've posted some of those to CPRnews.org, but is there like maybe a particular vista that you're excited about? Yeah. You know, we've talked about one already. I think Moonstone Hill is going to be fantastic. Um, Here in the Springs, there's a great opportunity to watch the riders um, climb in the Garden of the Gods. Um, and what fans can do is, is get online and look at our um, race profiles at VeloramaColorado.com, and they can find um, not only the course maps, but also opportunities um, to see the event. And again, we've posted some of your favorites as well at our website, cprnews.org. How about some of the top racers to watch? I don't know. Give us a couple each from the men's and women's teams. Sure. Um, on the women's side of the event, um, we've got really the best um, female riders in the field. Um, we've got Ruth Winder, who's with uh, United Healthcare Pro Cycling. You know, Ruth returned to racing after taking a year off to focus on Olympic track racing, and has been a it's been a really great season for her. She's a Boulder resident um, and has had numerous wins um, across the globe and here in the U.S. And another rider to watch would be Ali Drago um, with Show Air 10 2020. Um, she actually got her start in BMX racing, um, early in her career and, uh, switched to professional racing, um, more recently. She won a a GC title in the Cascade Cycling Classic this year and, and is certainly, um, has a lot of forward momentum. On the men's side of things, you know, we've got the runner up to the Tour de France joining us. Um, Rigoberto Uran, um, a lot of folks just call him Rigo, um, is, is here. He plays second in the Tour de France this year and rides for Cannondale Draypack. And then we also have um, his teammate, Taylor Finney, um, who is a Colorado native, um, uh, comes from a, a pretty historic cycling lineage and, and is a really exciting rider to watch. Indeed, he is a three-time Olympian himself and the son of two Olympians. And uh, we have a conversation with him at CPRnews.org uh, that we did just a few days ago ahead of the Colorado Classic. That's what we're talking about right now. The event gets underway tomorrow. Uh, what racers would you like to have seen compete here who aren't coming? Anyone in that category? Oh, you know, there's always room for um, additional riders that are 
competing on the international circuit. We're really happy with the field. Um, you know, we've got Alex Howes, Danny Pate, Greg Daniel. Um, the riders that we have here are both exciting and I think hungry for a win, uh, which makes for really exciting racing. As we mentioned, uh, that previous bike race in Colorado, the USA Pro Challenge, fell apart largely because of finances. From the standpoint of, I don't know, investors, why is this race any better? You know, I think we're, we're taking a fresh approach to pro racing in the U.S. Um, by combining it with a two-day, a three-day festival in, in Denver, I think we have an opportunity to um, create a more sustainable financial model that allows us to continue the race here. Um, the Pro Challenge had a great impact on the Colorado community and on our bike culture. Um, and the backers of this event, which include Ken Gart and David Koff, um, Ken is currently serving as our state's bike czar. Um, you know, their goal is to... Um, create a model that allows us to, to have this event for a long time into the future. And so, uh, so I think this format does that. This this format being Velorama and the kind of combination of the music culture, the beer culture, and the bike culture, that, that's a source, in other words, of revenue. You're, you're not just depending on pure sponsorship and entry fees, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think you pointed out at the beginning that the Pro Challenge, as successful as it was, wasn't able to sustain itself. Um, that that's largely due to there not being a gate to charge a ticket at to support the event. And so we've changed that format this year with Velorama. So for folks who are interested in seeing music, um, going to a Denver flea and also seeing the bike race, um, they can come down to uh, Rhino and do that on Friday through Sunday. In addition to that, you know, we've got um, a really great beer sponsor um, through Drink Rhino, which is all the local breweries in the Rhino area have um, combined together to support the event. And that's a nice opportunity to um, taste local culture as well. I, I see what you did there, Ben Davis, getting in the name of your sponsors. Um, <laughs> the, the tickets to the street party, I think, are at 45 a pop. Uh, when, when this race was announced, the investors planned a similar race in Virginia, I think, and that was canceled. Does that bode uh, or tell us anything about Colorado's race or the future of it? You know, it really doesn't. Um, very early on in the process, so uh, almost a year ago, we had some benchmarks that communities had to hit in order to continue moving forward to the next phase. Um, we hope that Virginia is able to meet those benchmarks in the future. Um, but uh, Colorado was able to, and we focused our energy here. Finally, there's been some controversy surrounding uh, Lance Armstrong, who, of course, won seven tours to France before he was banned from cycling for doping. He now does race podcasts, and he was scheduled to cover the classic this month. Then the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency said any formal agreement with race organizers would violate his ban from the sport and might result in the International Cycling Union withdrawing its sanction for your race. So what right now is your relationship with Armstrong at this point? You know, um, because of USADA's concerns, we canceled our marketing partnership with him. Um, that said, he's planning on covering the event just as, um, you know, CPR is, just as uh, local media outlets and national media outlets are. Um, so we expect Lance to be producing a podcast every day, um, which he calls Stages. Um, and uh, we look forward to looking at his coverage. Doing so as an outsider, not affiliated now with the race. Ben, Thanks. Thanks, thanks so much for being with mm -hmm. us. Thank you, Ryan. Great to have you. He's Ben Davis, spokesman for the new Colorado Classic Bike Race and Velorama. The event starts tomorrow in Colorado Springs, hits Breckenridge Friday, runs a circuit from Denver to the peak-to-peak -peak highway Saturday, and closes out in Denver Sunday. Again, you can see recommendations for top viewing spots at cprnews.org.
In 1765, Juan Rivera set out to explore lands that are now part of western Colorado. He wanted to find silver and heavily bearded men. Montrose archaeologist Stephen Baker has used Rivera's long-lost, now-found, but still misunderstood journals to write a book about the trek. He joins us from our studio in Grand Junction. And Stephen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Always a pleasure, sir. Juan Antonio Maria de Rivera, not a well-known explorer, perhaps if you think of others that you can conjure up immediately in your mind, uh, but he traveled through what is now Western Colorado 252 years ago, and he really didn't find what he was searching for. So why write a book about him? Well, Rivera was the pathfinder for the icons of history for Colorado and Utah of Fathers Dominguez and Velez de Escalante 11 years later. They carried his journal, had people with him, and followed his track, and they were actually on one of the same missions that Rivera was. That's a very little-known fact that we just pulled out of this. And the book is, and his journal is the foundation and the cornerstone and the foundation of Colorado's historical patrimony, the first descriptions of Western Colorado and the first meaningful description of the entire state. Oh, so he paved the way so that other explorers could be perhaps a a bit more successful, I guess. Yes, he did. He was really the first uh, Euro-American to enter the interior of the Western United States. Who was Juan Rivera? Tell us more about him. Well, we don't know too much about him. We know he was baptized in uh, uh, Chihuahua, Mexico. His family came out of Abiquiu during the Pueblo Revolt and went to El Paso, like many of the Spanish did from the New Mexico area, and appeared in uh, Chihuahua. Then we don't know anything about him until he appears with Governor Cachupan, uh, who was governor in uh, 1765 in New Mexico. And we think he came up out of Mexico with the governor as part of his retinue. Uh, we do know he had a little uh, mining experience from some of the terms he used that were kind of specific mining terms in western Mexico. And let's be clear. That's about all we know. So he's a bit of a mysterious figure. And I want to be clear that New Mexico at that point is under Spanish control. Yes. Yeah. So Rivera was sent to explore the wilds, again, of what is now Colorado, and he was explicitly charged with finding silver. He was also sent to track down a tribe of heavily bearded men. Now, I get the silver. Why the hirsute men? Well, the first thing is that New Mexico uh, sorely lacked uh, a good economy. They needed uh, 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 precious metals to mine to become prosperous, and those were under the control of the Utes up in the Colorado country, and the Utes didn't want anybody up there. And so uh, that was one aspect. He was to go to try to uh, find the sources of what were called silver nails, which is a long story I won't go into. And then he uh, was also charged with finding and charting the Colorado River, then known as the River Tizone, And beyond it was a group of men that had been long in the legends of both French and Spanish of bearded men who looked like Europeans. Uh, The Indians recognized them as such. Father Dominguez and Escalante actually found them in a land called Tewayo, up near the Great Salt Lake in Utah. Uh, The Spanish government, uh, the crown, was concerned that these might be interloping Frenchmen or Russians Mm. pressing on their frontier. 
and so they sent Rivera specifically to find them. His expedition is unusual in that it was an ethnologically oriented expedition. He was to find out about people. He wasn't chasing renegade Indians, or he wasn't just off in the wilds looking for gold or silver. He was sent specifically to find these people. We are talking about the explorer Juan Rivera with archaeologist Stephen Baker, who joins me from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. And um, so he doesn't find the bearded men, but you say again, he, he, uh, his path paves the way for others to do so. And who, who were they? Were they Russians? Were they French? Did they exist? Well, we don't know for certain. Hmm. We do know that the bearded men uh, are known to physical anthropologists with uh, seemingly Caucasian-like features. Many thousands of years ago on the Upper Plains and up on the Columbia River, they're somewhat different, and they were so different that the fathers, Dominguez Nescalante, commented on them and used the term, in their physiognomy, they differ from all other Indians. And a Frenchman on the uh, Platte River met a few of these people in 1689, 100 years before uh, uh, Dominguez Nescalante did, and he said this exactly the same thing and described them exactly the same way that the fathers later did. But Rivera ran out of steam on the Gunnison River near Delta, Colorado. Uh, two reasons. One, uh, we don't know for sure. They were afraid of Comanches. And the Indians were very reluctant to take them to the to Tewayo for fear of the wrath of the head guy up there. They were afraid they'd kill him and kill all of them. They'd never come back. Then he said his horses were worn out, so we don't know. But he turned around down at the Rubidoux Crossing west of Delta, Colorado, in the fall of 1765, and went back to Santa Fe. But it's quite possible that these interlopers he was setting out to find were not Europeans at all. That's correct. No. In fact, father, go ahead. You, you father, go, no, uh, you father, go ahead. <laughs> okay, father Escalante uh, actually wrote a year ahead of his trip They've always, the fathers have always been said to have been going to find a way to California. That was the official explanation. Father Escalante gave up on it a year before, and no one ever knew this before until I found a letter. He wrote to the governor, said, I've given up on going to California. There's too many unknown Indians and too much distance involved. Instead, I want to go north and find the bearded men and find out if they are uh, the result of shipwrecked sailors who made their way inland or whether they're Native Americans or American Indians or, as he called them, savages. Uh, so his mission was to go, and he knew the way where Father Dominguez didn't, and he led Father Dominguez way, way north of any route to California, and they ended up shooting craps out in the Sevier Desert about whether to go on to California or not. Mm -hmm. But uh, Rivera was a pathfinder, and uh, uh, Father Dominguez and Escalante certainly uh, were fulfilling his failed mission to find the bearded men. And that's who we're talking about right now, the explorer Juan Rivera. And I, I understand you admire him as a, an archaeologist, really, because you give him credit for conducting the first archaeological research. In I believe you know. Rivera perhaps was the first uh, archaeologist in North America, north of Mexico. He actually did some purposeful excavation down around Bayfield uh, on the Pine River, 
uh, where he was investigating Indian ruins because he found what he thought might be evidence of smelters for precious metals. He conserved artifacts and took them back to Santa Fe with him, and he wrote a report. It's only about three uh, sentences long, but those are the three critical ingredients of archaeology, is exploration and conservation of artifacts and writing a report. And so 1765, he was ahead of Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) You started by telling us that we don't know a lot about Juan Rivera, Um, but, but you've looked at his journals. Why aren't they more revealing? Well, uh, two reasons. Uh, uh, One, the first of them, perhaps most important, is that Rivera was a very succinct writer, and he may have been doing this intentionally. The uh, expedition was not officially sanctioned by the Crown. It was privately financed, perhaps by the governor of New Mexico, and they didn't want to put too much in there. Secondly, uh, no one's really ever seen these journals before. Uh, They're very hard to come by. Uh, I was fortunate, knew a man that had a copy of them uh, made back in the 60s. But I've often said that if Rivera was up to his waist in in quicksand, he'd say, I found a little mud today. (laughs) Very very hard to to read him. He's he's, uh, the original uh, sparse speaker, as you might say. And that's one of the reasons it took so long was to figure out uh, his route was because of the sparseness of his journals. It somehow doesn't surprise me that someone who has the gumption to be an explorer uh, in the early Americas might also be taciturn at the same time. Do you hope that Juan Rivera will occupy a larger place in, I guess, Western history books? I believe it uh, absolutely certainly will. I would never have given 25 to 30 years of my life and the terrible expenses involved to chase something that wasn't uh, uh, really going to be revealing and meaningful. As I say, uh, the Journal of uh, Dominguez and Escalantes for years has been the foundational document in Utah and Colorado. Uh, and now we have one earlier and that's far more rare and little lesser known, yet it's hugely important. My partner in this was Rick Hendricks, New Mexico state archaeologist, or state historian rather, and it was Rick's view that this stands right up there with all their other early expeditions. This is a foundational document in American exploration, and I, I can't uh, say that too uh, strongly, and I'm not trying to just toot my own horn at all, hmm. but it is an important, important document, and as I mentioned, the first real uh, narrative of interior exploration in North America, north of Mexico. I mean, gosh, yeah, people in the West, I think, know better the the Dominguez-Escalante expedition, uh, in part because there are, like, parks and conservation areas that even carry the name. Is there anything named after Rivera here in the West? Yes, actually, in the bicentennial uh, uh, commemoration back in 76, the state of Colorado and the Bicentennial Commission put up markers and they mentioned Rivera. Uh, the marker at the Ute Indian Museum in Montrose uh, speaks to Rivera. And uh, the Journal of, of uh, the Fathers, uh, Dominguez and Escalante, uh, they referenced to Rivera's journals and referenced to Rivera, but we never knew where the journals were until they were found uh, uh, by Dr. Donald Cutter of the University of New Mexico. Uh, back in the late 60s, one of his staff founded in the military archives in Madrid. And then Cutter uh, ultimately asked me to do the trail route research and uh, for him. And then I uh, ultimately inherited the project when Don got uh, to be a, a senior and retired and finally passed away. That's how I got involved with it. But it's uh, 
a, a big deal where most uh, the foundational documents in American history, like Lewis and Clark's journals as an example, yeah. or Dominguez Escalante, have been gone over time and time and time again. And this is really the only the first book ever produced on it. Uh, Joseph Sanchez did a translation, but he didn't do a trail study. Didn't know where Rivera went. And let me say that it was too. back in the nineties. Your book is Juan so Rivera's. Is the, your book is Juan Rivera's Colorado, seventeen sixty five, and uh, perhaps there's even more room for other archaeologists to do some digging on this. Uh, Stephen Baker, thank you. He's uh, a Montrose author and archaeologist. He joined us from our studio in Grand Junction. That's the program for today. You can follow us on Twitter at CPR News and at Colorado Matters. And I'm at CPR Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. And thanks to Michael Hughes, Matt Hers, Shane Rumsey, and Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters. <laughs>